It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of campaign curiosities. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. When Ted Cruz talks about his insurgency against the establishment of the Republican Party, he's aiming at senators like John McCain. But there was a time when John McCain, the Arizona senator, was the anti-establishment crusader. In the election of 2000, the Republican Party had chosen George W. Bush, the governor of Texas, long before the voters ever got out the rubber-headed mallet to pound the first yard sign. In perhaps one of the most masterful victories in the invisible primary, Bush became the consensus favorite with every lobbyist, longtime GOP fundraiser, and inside Republican. He was a lock. He was in the books before they were open. The only problem is that he forgot to tell the voters of New Hampshire. More on this story in a moment after a word from our sponsor. Squarespace takes the worry and sadness out of website production. Sites look professionally designed regardless of skill level. No coding required. It's all very intuitive. The tools are easy to use, so why not get yourself a website or an online store using Squarespace? Start your free trial today at squarespace.com. Use the offer code WHISTLESTOP and get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Our whistle stop today is someday, just like every other day in January of 2000, and we're riding a custom-designed bus through the cold gray streets of New Hampshire. A semicircle of reporters are sitting in the banquette in the back of the bus. Some of them, who are particularly kind to their colleagues, are perched on top of the banquette, balancing their narrow posterior on a triangle of upholstered material to allow other reporters to squeeze in on the cushions and squeeze in on one of the most amazing things that had happened in their careers. One of those reporters, who decided sideburns was a good idea that year and is about two months too late for a haircut, perches on top of the banquette. Like a lot of other reporters, he can't stay away from the rolling, rollicking insurgent campaign launched by the Arizona Senator John McCain. The senator sits at the center of this semicircle, clutching his Dunkin' Donuts coffee mug. It's early in the day, but it's at least his second cup. Throughout the day, he will only be divorced from that styrofoam cauldron of goodness to speak in town halls or to apply hand sanitizer. Give me a squirt of that stuff, he would ask every time he'd get back on the bus and take his place among the banquettes. Todd Harris, who is now a senior advisor to the Rubio campaign, would help him out. Or Mike Murphy, now running Right to Rise, the Jeb Bush superback, clobbering Rubio on the airwaves, would call for the sanitizer to be brought forward. John Weaver, strategist to the Kasich campaign, sat somewhere smoldering in the corner thinking about logistics and a new way to punish George W. Bush. When McCain was handed the hand sanitizer, he was awkward with it because his arms, broken in the plane crash that made the young naval aviator a prisoner of war in 1967, were set by prison doctors who didn't care about him. It's one of the many visible remnants of his ordeal. So he does his best to rub his hands together 
with the hand sanitizer. The reporters were there on the bus dubbed the Straight Talk Express because it was one of the most entertaining shows in politics. A mischief maker senator who seemed to have an inexhaustible share of stories and jokes and opinions and who would talk about anything that anyone asked him. It seemed like a relic of a time that maybe never even existed. John McCain's 2000 campaign was a historic moment, not just for the rags-to-riches political story of a long-shot insurgent taking on the establishment. It was the last gasp of a pre-internet age without tweeting instantaneous blogging where a candidate could offer some semblance of their actual self on the campaign trail without being plunged into instantaneous controversy by a constantly needy machine of fresh hot takes, partisanship, and permanent warfare that's all required to keep the money clicks and adrenaline flowing. At almost every stop, McCain would close his speech by saying, I'm going to tell you something. I may have said some things here today that maybe you don't agree with, and I might have said some things that you hopefully agree with. But I will always tell you the truth. This always got a standing ovation. It was a simple promise not to lie. Remember, Jimmy Carter had made that promise in 1976. It shouldn't have been such a crowd pleaser, but after the Clinton years, where the president seemed to lie a lot, this was a tonic to Republican audiences. But it was also a balm to independents and even some Democrats. When politicians opened their mouths, they seemed only to be able to mint bubbling bromides, one after another, they produced bilious clouds of nonsense, and McCain said things that he believed. It was not a precursor to the fight against political correctness that we see in 2016, though McCain could himself tell juvenile jokes that were not politically correct. But when he did, he knew they were out of bounds, and he was sheepish about them and embarrassed for being such a jerk. The kinds of truths McCain was trying to tell was an effort to talk about the politics of the moment, the scam at the center of it. His signature campaign issue was campaign finance reform. He railed against the corrupting influence of big money. No matter what the issue, health care, taxes, defense, he said the will of the people had been thwarted by the outside influence of campaign donors who shaped the playing field. It was a message not that different from the one we hear from Bernie Sanders. Why was McCain different than other candidates? Politicians promise they'll keep their word, but McCain was the living embodiment of it. It was a combination of promise, but with the steel of having actually endured something where he had to keep his word. For four years, he served at a POW, staying true to a code, refusing to jump the line to get early release. But this wasn't a purity campaign. What made McCain's moment so fascinating were its flaws. McCain's anti-posturing was itself a posture. Still, if all politics is a show, this was a show that touched an eternal truth for which there was a yearning. It was a truth at the center of it that got McCain through his inconsistencies. The times when McCain himself would spin out of his shoes, despite the fact that he often said that spinning was lying. He was encased in a plan to not act like a politician, but he knew that plan was itself artifice. So he was constantly trying to prove that he was on the level, only to be pulled back into the pursuit of his ambition, which required having to behave like a politician. It was the struggle of the imperfect, which is another way that the campaign was so authentic. At the heart of those contradictions was a great personal story about a duty-bound politician whose candor extended to himself. Regularly, he would self-flagellate about his personal failings and where he had let down his own code. At the time, essayist Lance Morrow wrote about the search for an adult. After seven years of Bill Clinton, the inchoate grown-up factor has taken shape in the electoral mind. There is a hunger, call it an unarticulated disgust, to see a mature adult in the White House the next time around. But despite this inchoate search for an adult, 
there was no Republican frontrunner. We hear a lot about in the year of, in this election of 2016 that are not being a Republican frontrunner. It's supposed to be a party that, had a, that has a person whose turn it was. That's the way it was for Bob Dole in 96, for Bush in 88, for Reagan in 80. This is what is supposed to make the 2016 election different. But in 1998, there was no frontrunner either. Lamar Alexander hadn't done well enough in 96 to be considered the frontrunner, and neither had Steve Forbes. Dan Quayle was still a laughingstock among some people. Though he was thinking about running, he wouldn't have been considered the person whose turn it was. So who was going to emerge? What happened is that George Bush created front-runner status in one of the most impressive inevitability-building exercises in modern politics. In 2015, Jeb Bush tried to create what was called a shock and awe money campaign by raising so much money he'd scare his opponents and create a bandwagon effect where the establishment would rally around him. It worked for about a month, but it didn't work anything like the operation that was built by his brother and Karl Rove in 2000. The foundation for that operation was laid in the GOP losses of 1998. The Republican Party in control of Congress had impeached Bill Clinton, and it was widely seen to have been a huge mistake. Republican pollster Frank Luntz termed the campaign against the president, quote, the stupidest single political decision that I know of. The Democrats actually picked up seats in 1998. Newt Gingrich, the leader of the 94 revolution that changed the direction of Congress among Republicans, ended up leaving Congress after that election. His movement appeared to have been defeated. So the party was looking for a leader outside of Washington a governor, and that's what put them in the mood to embrace Bush. Also, Bush had won a big election in that same election day on 1998. Unlike Washington Republicans, the Texas governor had been a huge winner. He'd picked up seven of ten, every 10 votes, two-thirds of them women, 50% of Hispanics. He won a third of Democrats. House Republicans were being caricatured as mean and stingy, and Bush was a crossover success who'd worked with a Democratic legislative leader and who talked about education issues that would matter in that fight for suburban voters, particularly suburban women. He talked about education with passion and with knowledge. He also talked about compassionate conservatism, using government to help the least among us. When he talked about taxes, he talked about the waitress mom who had to struggle through several jobs. He acted and spoke like a general election winner. And after two terms of Clinton and the congressional drubbing they'd gotten in 1998, he was poised to be the anointed candidate. But being poised doesn't do it. You've got to build it. And man, did they build it. Karl Rove set about a careful Austin-based front porch campaign. Bush basically held off speculation about his presidential campaign until his reelection in 98. This allowed him to work privately, bringing fundraisers down to Austin, meeting with the governor, doing things privately, but ducking any public conversations about his future ambition by talking about getting reelected. This was helpful. Because Bush had learned already that expectations could swamp you. And he'd appeared in 1997 at the Midwestern Regional Political Conference in Indianapolis. It was the first of the cattle calls of the people who might be considering a race for the presidency. And he was jokey and slight and altogether unimpressive. This was supposed to be a, the great next GOP savior. As a young reporter covering the event, it sure didn't seem like there was a frontrunner coming out of it. So Bush went underground after that 1997 event and started running this front porch campaign. Donors would come down and be given the inside tour of how Bush was going to win the campaign. And so by June of 1999, he had raised $39 million, and by September, $50 million. The establishment had basically just opened up their wallets. He would raise almost, Bush would raise almost $100 million from 300,000 individual donors from all 50 states. 
there were 246 pioneers who were who had all pledged to raise $100,000 by bundling contributions from their friends who'd written $1,000 checks. This, by the way, would form the group of future administration officials. About half, or excuse me, a little less than half of the pioneers would end up getting jobs in the Bush administration. All McCain had going for him was his book, Faith of My Fathers. It was moving and it was well-written, co-written by Mark Salter. It told the story of his grandfather and great-grandfather, both naval war heroes, and of McCain's POW experience, which was full of moving war stories of heroism. The entire operation on the campaign trail where McCain would go and sign books everywhere and people would bring the books and hold them up at his rally seemed like a redemption of the Vietnam War for a new generation. It was as if McCain was building a bridge between his book and Tom Brokaw's book, The Greatest Generation, while other politicians were telling stories about legislation and voters were trying to follow rabbit hole debates about ideological purities that were being debated among the candidates, McCain was telling stories about heroism and death and codes of honor. Other politicians tried to confect attributes of heroism and bring them upon themselves. The McCain campaign had this stuff in its bones. The locus of McCain's insurgent campaign when he was at single digits in the polls was his bus called the Straight Talk Express. He drove it through New Hampshire and South Carolina. I first caught up with it in August of 1999 when it was 105 degrees in Charleston, South Carolina. I'd packed my normal clothes, but this was not a day for that. I bought a shirt in the gift shop and halfway through McCain's town hall, the first I ever attended, sweated completely through that blue shirt. What made the Straight Talk Express so different was the level of access. McCain was always on, and he was always talking. More than once, friends and former POWs I talked to would say that McCain sounded like he was making up for the time that he'd been in solitary confinement. In fact, when he'd come back from Vietnam after his release, he'd done a version of this, reading everything that he could get his hands on that had been written while he was away, and then going to school about the war that he had missed while he was in prison. On the back of that bus, the day would start with the news of the day, conversation about the latest assault against Bush or a congressional debate or something that was happening overseas. Then there would be talk about politics and sports or a Hemingway novel or food or places that he'd visited all around the world. No senator has probably taken better advantage of trips to foreign countries than John McCain. And by taking advantage, I mean coming back with fantastic stories about wonders that he had seen he was the enthusiast candidate, enthusiastic about everything that he had done and that he was doing. The conversation would last long enough to take us to the next town hall or speech where something weird would happen, and that would fuel the conversation for the next 100 miles or so the bus would travel. It was an entertaining but seemingly fruitless process. George Bush had locked things up. He was the establishment favorite, and the polls showed it for much of 1999. And that's why Bush had their, the Bush campaign had their man on lockdown, worried that one of his malapropisms would make him seem unprepared for the presidency. McCain's plan, of course, was the opposite, allowing the candidate to flap his gums so carelessly that slips ceased to be newsworthy. There would be times that McCain would keep going even after he'd fatigued all the reporters sitting around him, and sometimes he would just, in, in silence, as if he couldn't endure the silence, he would just say, okay, what else? If the Straight Talk Express was the, the locust of the McCain truth-telling pitch. New Hampshire was the state for that pitch. McCain did 114 town halls after it was over in New Hampshire, and I must have attended 80% of them. 
As he would often tell crowds, the first of his town halls was in Peterborough, New Hampshire. Not many people showed up, even though he was offering free ice cream. By the time he went back there to that town hall at the end of the 2000 campaign, he had created a revolution in politics, building a groundswell of affection through simple hard work. To attend those town halls was at times like attending a comedy show. McCain in the role of Shecky would open with a routine that for those of us on the bus would become so familiar that we could mouth the jokes in our sleep. We're just going to have to play tape here of McCain at the beginning of one of his town halls. What you're about to hear, it's going to go on a little bit. Imagine hearing this 114 times. But this is it gives you some sense of the twinkly-eyed McCain that won over the voters, but also the nature of what it was like on the back of that bus. I want to thank you for being here. I want to mention to you that the town hall attendance that we've been having is quite uh, phenomenal. Uh, I'm very impressed and very grateful and thank all of you for being here. Anyone wants to take a nap, go right ahead while we're waiting, okay? Um, you know, back in, I was mentioning one of the reporters that back in July, uh, we had a town hall meeting at Peterborough and we had it at the town hall and we gave away free ice cream and 40 people came. Uh, about three weeks ago, we had a, another town hall there and 450 people came and we don't even have to give away ice cream anymore. <laughs> Uh, uh, back six months ago, uh, I had, well, they had a poll uh, that showed that I was at 3% approval, and that uh, poll had a 5% margin of error. So <laughs> I could have conceivably started this campaign at minus two. Uh, I want to thank all of you uh, for being here tonight. I've had a wonderful experience. Uh, with, we had a good debate last night, by the way, and I enjoyed that. Uh, we've had a wonderful experience in this campaign. By the way, if there's a couple of people that are looking for seats, there's a couple of seats up front here. Please don't be embarrassed to come forward if you need to. In fact, uh, after my speech, our cheerleaders will perform so that you will be invigorated by, by my speech. Thank you all for coming. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I want to tell you that uh, I'm very pleased to have the opportunity again. I want to tell you the depths to which I have sunk in order to seek uh, your support. One, I spoke to a West Point graduate's dinner. Now, very few things that are more demeaning than that for a Naval Academy graduate, uh, as you know. Uh, I, uh, I've been to Dixville Notch not once but twice. Uh, in, in search of those 29 registered voters to, <laughs> to, to sew uh, them up. And I'd like to tell you I had a great experience, not only in Dixville Notch, but having a, a, all of this put into perspective for me. Uh, I know that many of you know that at Dixville Notch, uh, at the Balsams there, lives a wonderful man who's now 101 years old named Mr. Tillotson, whose idea it was to have the vote at midnight and then the count. And he said that last uh, election they had some 600 or 400 media people there to chronicle that uh, counting of the 29 votes but uh, anyway I went over to see Mr. Tillotson at his home uh, he came out we sat there and, and, and talked and he began to tell me about all of the Republican president all the presidential candidates that he had known over the years who have come to Dixville Notch for the same crass base reason that I was there and uh, uh, he said uh, I said, he told me about Lyndon Johnson and, and Barry Goldwater and Morris Udall and all of these people. And I said, finally, I said, Mr. Tillotson, who is your favorite, who is your favorite Republican presidential candidate? He said, Theodore Roosevelt. 
Now, if that doesn't give you a sense of perspective, uh, nothing else will. Uh, we've had a great time. Second of all, I, I seek your sympathy uh, because I'm from the state of Arizona. We have so little water there, the trees chase the dogs. Some blame, some blame this latest drought and lack of snow on me. I refuse to take uh, responsibility uh, for that. But uh, it, here's our problem in Arizona. Barry Goldwater from Arizona ran for president of the United States. Marsh Udall from Arizona ran for president of the United States. Bruce Babbitt from Arizona ran for president of the United States. Arizona may be the only state in America where mothers don't tell their children that someday they can grow up and be president of the United States. And I want to fix that. I think it's a terrible thing for mothers in Arizona. I... A very beloved friend of mine named Mo Udall was the funniest man I've known in American politics and uh, one of the nicest people that I've known. Uh, his famous trademark joke, uh, I always tell, I've retold thousands of times, where he walked into a, when he was running for president in 1976, and he walked into a barber shop in Manchester, New Hampshire, and he said, hi, I'm Morris Udall from Arizona, and I'm running for president of the United States. And the barber said, yeah, we're just laughing about that this morning. <laughs> that... That was my experience early on. The one thing that I have found about town hall meetings is that people don't like to hear long remarks. They want to ask questions, comments, and occasional insults. And so I will make my remarks very brief. I want to talk to you just about one issue tonight before uh, we go into the question and answer period. Uh, but I must, before I go on, I see my book there, uh, copy my book, and I'm not here to hype that book. Don't get me wrong. It's $24.95, Random House, <laughs> available available on Amazon.com. I'm not uh, four months on the bestseller list. I certainly would not. But I sure am glad to sign that for you after the Soviet right. The audience would then stand and ask questions. And sometimes McCain would get into fights with people in the crowd. I'd interview them afterwards, and they'd say they had more respect for him because he fought with them. McCain ended his town halls almost always with the story of Mike Christian. The North Vietnamese for many years kept the prisoners of war in solitary confinement or two or three to a cell. Thanks to the efforts of millions of Americans, including our veterans, uh, the Vietnamese changed that treatment and moved us from solitary confinement or two or three to a cell to cells with 25 or 30 in each, in each cell. One of the people that moved into the cell with me when I was moved was a young man by the name of Mike Christian. Mike Christian came, a, in, came from a very, very poor family near Selma, Alabama. He didn't wear a pair of shoes until he was 13 years of age. At 17, he, enjoyed, he enlisted in the United States Navy, later became an officer, and later became a bombardier navigator in an A-6 uh, aircraft and was shot down and captured about a year before I was. Mike had a keen appreciation of the opportunities that service to our country and the military provides. As part of the change in treatment, the Vietnamese allowed us from packages from home that had small articles of clothing or handkerchief or something like that in it. The uniform that we wore in prison was a short sleeve blue shirt, blue trousers that looked like pajama trousers, and uh, sandals that were cut out of automobile tires. Now, I recommend them very highly. One pair lasted me five and a half years. Anyway, <clears throat> a Christian was able to fashion himself a bamboo needle and got a piece of white cloth and a piece of red cloth, and over about a month, he sewed on the inside of his shirt the American flag. Every evening before we would have our bowl of soup, we would put Mike Christian's shirt on the wall of our cell and say the Pledge of Allegiance. 
Now, I will freely admit to you, saying the Pledge of Allegiance to our flag and our country is not usually the most important part of our day. I want to tell you in that prison cell, a couple of guys had already been there for seven years, pledging our allegiance to our flag and our country was indeed the most important part of our day. One day the Vietnamese came, searched our cell, found my Christian shirt with the flag sewn inside of it, removed it. That evening they came back, opened the door of the cell, called for him to come out. He did. They closed the door of the cell, and for about the next hour they beat him very severely, after which they opened the door of the cell and threw him back in. The cell in which we lived had a concrete slab in the center of it which we slept, and in each corner of the room a light bulb shone 24 hours a day, rather dimly. Well, we cleaned up Mike as well as we could. You can imagine he was not in great shape. And I went over to lay down uh, on the slab to go to sleep. And as I did, I happened to look over and in the corner of the cell, beneath that dim light bulb, with a piece of white cloth and a piece of red cloth and his bamboo needle and another shirt with his eyes almost shut from the beating that he had received was, of course, my friend Mike Christian sewing another American flag. Mike wasn't sewing that flag because it made him feel better. He was sewing that flag because he knew how important it was to us to pledge our allegiance to our flag and country. I think of Mike all the time, but I also know that there are young men and women who are serving today who are as good, every bit as good or better than Mike and I were. And I'm so proud that we are associated with the best of America who are serving in our, in our nation's armed forces, who are carrying on the noble tradition of a young man from a small town near Selma, Alabama, named, <clears throat> named Mike Christian. Thank you very much, and thank you for being with me tonight. Thank you. Audiences cheered McCain because, like Barack Obama in 2008, McCain was giving them freedom and inspiration to cheer and applaud for ideas that had seemed dusty and out of date. Heroism and doing the right thing when no one is looking. It felt good to cheer for McCain. While McCain was running a New Hampshire campaign, Bush was running a national campaign. That's what his campaign called it. And they they made McCain's New Hampshire efforts seem like the small obsession of a third-rate candidate. While Bush was a national politician, building an organization and behaving in the way a future president or a future party nominee would look. But this gave support to the impression that he was aloof and trying to coast the nomination on his money and all of his establishment support. His brother is right now fighting his heart out in New Hampshire to come back. George W. Bush did not. He stayed away from the press largely, skipped the first Republican debates. Meanwhile, McCain's out there mixing it up with the people. Bush was shaking the manicured hands of the donor class. Emily Mead, who worked in the Bush White House before returning to New Hampshire to run a small policy think tank, saw it coming, according to Time magazine. She even sent a warning note to Barbara Bush who wrote back and said she would pass on the warning to the campaign. Three months went by, and he was hardly here at all, said Meade. You can't run a campaign like that and expect to win. As McCain started to rise at the end of 1999, the Bush campaign and the establishment started to turn their slow heads towards him. He started moving up in the polls. He was still behind Bush. Bush's plan was to come on strong, win Iowa, and then roll like the thunder through the rest of those contests. Still, they had this pesky McCain to deal with, and many of McCain's colleagues didn't like him, so they started to go after him. The main target? His temper. The largest newspaper in McCain's home state, the Arizona Republic, wrote a highly unusual editorial in which it declared there is also reason to seriously question whether McCain has the temperament and the political approach and skills we want in the next president of the United States. Arizona Governor Jane Hull had gone public with her experiences of holding the phone away from her ear while McCain called and yelled at her. 
McCain was actually not unlike Ted Cruz, though he would probably hunt me down and beat me up if he heard me so compare him. He's not a fan of Ted Cruz. McCain was running as a revolutionary from within the institution. Unlike Cruz, who presents himself as the one true conservative working against the horde, it was the conservatives who bucked against McCain and his deals with Democrats through issues like campaign finance reform and anti-tobacco regulation. McCain was trying to work with Democrats to thwart, according to conservatives, conservative principles. But precisely because he was willing to rip up the rule book and stomp around a little bit, McCain had won the hearts of those who were sick of Washington and wanted it to be changed. But when the establishment fought back, the senators in the Senate fought back because when McCain would argue on campaign finance reform, he would say essentially that it was corrupting all the Republican senators, much like Ted Cruz when he says the establishment in, in the Senate is corrupt. So they were only too happy to fight with McCain. And also, by the way, there were specific instances. Whenever McCain would get involved in legislation, he would behave the way it was described. He boxed at the Naval Academy. He would charge into the center of the ring, throw punches until somebody went down. And that was sort of his strategy. That was also the way he dealt in the Senate. And so there were stories. Richard Shelby, who voted against the nomination of John Tower for the uh, Secretary of Defense, who McCain had supported, he lashed out at, at Shelby saying, he'd, you'll pay for it. He also got into a fight with John Dalton, who was the Navy secretary, calling him up and saying, you're finished. He also got into a fight with Pete Domenici over the tobacco legislation that ended up failing, but that McCain was championing, calling Domenici a chicken shit in front of his other colleagues. And there were lots of these stories going around. He seemed at time to have better relations with Democrats. He would often give Fritz Hollings, the ranking member on the Commerce Committee, the gavel when he would, McCain, the chairman, would leave, would hand the gavel over to Hollings, which is a little irregular. Often you're supposed to give it to the, to the next Republican in line. Underneath this question about his temperament, of course, was a more insidious and sensitive one, which was had his time as a prisoner of war loosened the bolts on his self-control. When it looked like he started to be a real threat to Bush, his Bush's backers in the Senate who started trying to goad McCain on the floor of the Senate. At the end of 1999, in a vote over campaign finance reform, one after another, senators from his own party baited him, hoping to bring out his temper. They tried to get him to explode on the floor, said McCain's ally, Democrat Russ Feingold. They tried as hard as they could. McCain rocked in his shoes. He folded and then unfolded his arms. He fidgeted with the papers on his lectern. But the man once crowned Senator Hothead did not blow. As he later remembered, I had to say to myself, look, John, you're not going to get anything by displaying anger here. Heading into the New Hampshire primary, Republican primary voters were, according to the polls, were choosing McCain over Bush when it came to vision, trust, and the ability to relate to the average Americans, all qualities associated with his personal character. George W. Bush scored better on keeping the economy strong and his ability to win in November. As McCain had developed himself as the insurgent, and as the anti-establishment candidate, Bush was struggling to prove that despite all of his support, he wasn't just a captive of the establishment. Uh, my zip code, 78701, that's Austin, Texas. It's not Washington, D.C. If you were to call me on the telephone, it'd be area code 512, not 202. I come from Texas. I've got a record as a governor. I've been setting agendas. I'm running my campaign in Austin, Texas. And the, and the reason I bring that up is I, I, I'm not of the Washington scene. I'm not a committee chairman. I'm not a, a, a chairman of a powerful committee like the Commerce Committee. And so people can say what they want to say, but the people of this party 
understand that I bring a fresh approach to politics. I come from outside Washington, D.C. Suddenly, after McCain had been behind Bush in the polls, the numbers started to change. Inside the McCain campaign, McCain's pollster, Bill McInturff, described the switch this way. I literally could not breathe, he told the Huffington Post a few years later. An assistant had called him with in the wee hours of the morning with a public survey that had shown McCain leading by a little bit. Are you dying? His assistant responded. There are two people in the entire world that now know, said McInturff, what could happen in New Hampshire, how big this is. And it's you and me, and it's two in the morning. At the National Crown Plaza, the campaign met in the McCain campaign met in a hotel suite to watch the returns. I was there because I'd been covering him since August on that bus in the 105 degree temperature. I'd been trying on my Teddy White act, sitting in on strategy sessions and drinking very late into the night with his campaign aides. This was a moment of history that seemed to be happening in front of us. McCain wouldn't allow himself to smile in that hotel suite when the returns were coming in. He was looking as if he'd been strapped into the chair. Campaign chairman Rick Davis knew what was on everyone's mind, not that McCain might lose, but that he might actually win. And then what would this campaign, which had been building the airplane while flying it, what would they do? It was Mark Salter, the writer and chief of staff, who's nearly as close to McCain as any of his children, who delivered the good news to the Arizona senator that he might not just be winning, but that he'd be winning huge, that men and women, old and young, libertarian and independents, were coming over. This could have implications, McCain deadpanned. Yes, responded Salter, like you could be president. And when the returns finally came in, McCain had not just won, he had walloped George Bush by 18 points. A man almost no one in no Republican in Washington liked now suddenly stood a chance to grab the party's nomination from the well-liked, well-named governor of Texas. Fine mess you've gotten me into, Weaver, McCain said to the 40-year-old political director, John Weaver, who had gone to McCain in February of 97 to persuade him to run. As word of McCain's route spread, his family rushed into the hotel suite. Kids ran between the sofas, grazing the table, spilling their Shirley Temples. McCain's daughter, Sydney, spun the youngest, her youngest son, Jimmy, as if they were doing the lily hop. Then when the networks finally called the race, Cindy, his wife's hands flew to her face. Her eyes filled with tears. The aides let out a cheer. McCain hugged his wife tightly, but they didn't smile. This was going to take some getting used to. Then the acceptance speech. Slow, 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 he kept saying to himself as he paced throughout the suite as if he were preparing to deliver a eulogy rather than frame the meaning of this moment. This was not a time for whooping or wisecracks, which is what he'd done at the back of that bus. The country was now going to be seeing him for the first time. The only other speech that will be more important will be his acceptance speech at the convention, said his California coordinator, Ken Kashigian. The goal was to take the reform message that had played so well in the small politics of New Hampshire and ramp it into a national crusade. Reform had to mean more than McCain's campaign finance agenda. It had to mean something larger. They said there wasn't room for reform in the Republican Party, said McCain at his acceptance speech. Well, we've made room. At that point, McCain got on his plane, flew down to South Carolina, where he was met at 3 a.m. in an airport hangar by hundreds of college kids and the ear-splitting techno sounds of Fat Boy Slim. It was so loud it almost parted your hair. Signs were waving, bodies were hopping on the concrete floor. This was the father of seven who'd spent five and a half years in a prison camp during a war that was over before many of the kids yelling and jumping up and down were even born. He's the last hero of American politics, Brandon Goringer, who was 22, told me. He drove all the way from Greenville to get a good spot on the stage. I don't agree with all of his politics on abortion and other stuff, but he tells the truth. 
There's something a little magical going on here, said McCain on the bus afterward, looking dazed by the crowd. There's something happening out there. In the end, McCain's surprise, blistering victory in New Hampshire and the insurgency that it launched was not to be. The empire struck back in South Carolina. The Bush campaign went negative and its local operatives played dirty. McCain was defeated and he, then he returned the favor in Michigan, in part by claiming that Bush was an anti-Catholic bigot. It all came to an end, though, in the Beverly Hilton Hotel on March 7th, Super Tuesday. Bush won big states, California, Ohio, New York, with the establishment help and because McCain couldn't appeal to conservatives in his own party. Bush's argument had been that McCain was winning in places like his home state and in New Hampshire where independents could cross over, but he wasn't going to win in contests with real Republicans. When McCain lost such contests, that put the lid on him. One of the best descriptions of the McCain phenomenon came from David Foster Wallace, the novelist, in his magazine article about the campaign. It's an extraordinary work, not for the reasons exactly that Wallace would have intended. It is a work neither of fiction nor nonfiction. It was presented as nonfiction, but having been there for this entire campaign and sat next to Foster Wallace on the bus, I know that much of what he reported is fiction. The descriptions are wrong from little facts to big facts. But despite the errors of fact and the pre-cooked and pat narrative, David Foster Wallace put his finger exactly on the larger truth of the McCain campaign. And here's what he wrote. We've been lied to and lied to, and it hurts to be lied to. It's ultimately just about that complicated. It hurts. We learn this at age four. It's grown-ups' first explanation to us of why it's bad to lie. How would you like it if? And we keep learning for years from hard experience that getting lied to sucks, that it diminishes you, denies you respect for yourself, for the liar, for the world. Especially if the lies are chronic, systemic, if experience seems to teach that everything you're supposed to believe in is really a game based on lies. Young voters have been taught well and thoroughly. You may not personally remember Vietnam or Watergate, but it's a good bet you remember no new taxes and out of the loop and no direct knowledge of any impropriety at this time and did not inhale and did not have sex with Ms. Lewinsky, etc., etc. It's painful to believe that would-be public servants you've been forced to choose between are all phonies whose real concern is their own care and feeding and who will lie so outrageously and with such a straight face that you know they've just got to believe you're an idiot. So who wouldn't yawn and turn away, trade apathy and cynicism for hurt of getting treated with contempt? And who wouldn't want to fall over themselves for a top politician who actually seems to talk to you like you were a person, an intelligent adult worthy of respect, a politician who all of a sudden out of nowhere comes on TV with his total long shot candidate and says that Washington is paralyzed and that everybody there has been bought off and that the only way to really return government to the people, as all the other candidates claim they want to do, is to outlaw huge unreported political contributions from corporations and lobbies and PACs, all of which are obvious truths that everybody knows, but no recent politician anywhere has the stones to say. Who wouldn't cheer hearing stuff like this, especially from a guy we know chose to sit in a dark box for four years instead of violate a code? Even in A.D. 2000, who among us is so cynical that he doesn't have some good old corny American hope way down deep in his heart, lying dormant like a spinster's ardor, not dead, but just waiting for the right guy to give it to. That's what captivated voters about McCain in New Hampshire. He was running against a candidate who had locked up all the money, who'd played the inside game. And it was a campaign in a year when McCain said the inside game was fixed. And he was the one who was going to break it. His message and his candidacy were the same thing. He didn't just tell voters he was going to break up the inside money establishment game. He was going to show them how he could do it. And he did it in New Hampshire. 
Our producer is Mike Wolo. Our executive producer is Steve Lichtig. Andy Bowers is chief content officer for Panoply. And that's the network of which Whistle Stop is a part. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Whistle Stop Cracker Jack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who would hold 150 town halls if he were running for office in New Hampshire. Squarespace is our sponsor. Check out their free trial. Go to squarespace.com, use the offer code WHISTLESTOP, and get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. If you like what you've heard, send uh, an email to WHISTLESTOP at slate.com and or please leave a review on the iTunes store. That would be great. It helps us get noticed and it helps us, encourages us in the wee hours of the morning when we're writing. That's it for Whistle Stop for this week. I'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening. I'm John Dickerson. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. All about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.